Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Mimi Young. Uh, she's a shamanic practitioner and a founder of Ceremony. Uh, and the first question I have, well, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Stuart. Yep. I've been looking forward to this. And uh, the first question I have is, what does it mean to be a shaman to you? Okay. Um, to answer that, um, I, I think it's important for me to define shaman and then to define shamanic practitioner, um, simply because I, I don't refer to myself as a shaman. So uh, a shaman is someone typically passed on through lineage or through very specific uh, ordeals that are recognized within a cultural grouping. Um, and they function as the messenger for the group, um, the messenger between the spirit world and the you know, living human world. And the spirit world, of course, can include uh, ancestors or animal, plant, uh, divinity, other types of entities uh, that they're uh, communicating with. Um, oftentimes they deliver messages they may travel to the spirit worlds to bring about resolution. There may even be sort of this like sacred dance and sacred battle that takes place, but, but they really are serving the group. And it's more um, like you're born into it and called into it more so than one would choose. Um, it's not something that, you know, you would, sort of consider like, oh, what would I like to be when I grow up? And, and you, you kind of go down that route. Um, and like I said, it's, uh, it's typically the, the term shaman is very regionalized and um, it is uh, deeply linked to uh, indigenous cultures. And shamanic practitioner is taking either um, a specific region in the practices and applying in the work uh, that that particular practitioner does, or perhaps in the case of myself, is taking what is called core shamanism. So the core, uh, the, the foundational ideas that are practiced universally um, across all cultures and applying it in one's practice. And I, I do make this distinction because A, I'm not born um, in you know, a direct sort of one generation above handed down to me sort of lineage. Um, and I did enter this by choice, even though in many cases, just sort of how life was steering me. One could argue that, you know, perhaps it wasn't like total choice. It was definitely um, something that the spirits were, were urging me to step into. 
Um, but I really want to be mindful and respectful of the various traditions that still hold so much reverence to the role of a shaman. Would you say that the, for those traditional communities that one of the jobs of the shaman was to be more comfortable with the unknown and the uncertainty and kind of go out into those uncertain places and be as a bridge between the unknown and the known? Mm, I think I would correct the term of known and unknown to seen and unseen. So the individual that works um, as a shaman or a shamanic practitioner um, is, yeah, like, I mean, you're, you are working in the unknown um, in the sense that you have completely um, surrendered to the greater expression of life. And there's a lot of humility around it. And that's why um, you don't really sort of set out to say, this is what I'm going to do and this is how it's going to play out. Um, but I would say that the service that, they are in for you know the group of people um is to be that bridge like you say uh between the seen world and the unseen world hmm. um sorry if you wanted me are you still there yeah i'm still here yeah um, yeah no I, I i was just thinking maybe like would it be valuable if i um elaborated a bit on unseen and seen Sure. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So seeing would be referring to what our five senses as human beings can typically um, agree on and mutually validate. Uh, and I would say that, you know, in this society, the, the role of the shaman has been usurped by the role of the doctor, like the Western white lab coat doctor. Um, and, and they really are exalted as um as a society's authority um and they really deem what you know what doctors approve um is typically what you know the mass uh agrees as also truth um the unseen would be the things that uh maybe like science hasn't necessarily validated or perhaps some people can perceive but not necessarily be able to define it in a logical linear sort of fashion. Um, and it's referencing the paranormal, it's referencing the dead, it's referencing um, uh, entities that we typically say, no, they don't have personalities such as plants um, or rocks or even other elements of nature such as fire or wind or even, or even sorry, even animals. I mean, I know that animals, people, especially if they have pets, can agree that yes, pets have personality, but they don't typically see them as, you know, in communication with them um, on a deep level, other than I'm hungry or I need to go out for a walk kind of idea. Um, but but the work of a shamanic practitioner or a shaman is, is very much rooted in all those things I've listed. Um, and they really have very little regard, um, not in a rebellious way, but just in a, once again, a deeply connected way, knowing that like, reality is far, far greater than what uh, medicine can validate. And knowing that medicine has its own agenda and its own sort of capitalist just ties, right, to, to, to a bigger sort of system or machine of pharmaceuticals and, and the marketplace and so forth. And then 
What do you know about uh, essentially the shamanic initiation or the culture? Like, and I'm I'm more interested in like the the maybe well both of them the either a specific cultural representation of that or the theme that shows up in all the different cultures that's accessible to all of them about this sh mm. shamanic initiation or this thing that uh, somebody has to go through or so it's kind of maybe even forced upon them by reality or by their, their, their life that allows them to see into this unseen part? I would say that um, typically it's a near-death experience. Um, and, and this is fairly universal um, to all uh, cultures that uh, still has a very vibrant um, shamanic practice and, you know, representation of a shaman. But even in, you know, shamanic practitioners, fairly often there is a near-death near, uh, experience. And, of course, you know, how do you define death? Certainly um, it could be physical, um, and to be able to come out of that is, uh, is a transformation. Um, but it can also be one of like a, a very deep and real psychological death. Um, I say this because this is what I personally went through, um, a real psychological death in relating to my own um, Taiwanese slash westernized culture and, and paradigm, uh, to me stepping away from organized religion, um, to me shifting out of um, some archetypes that I had always identified and I'd always sort of thought that that is me, like Mimi, um, and, uh, and really uh, allowed those, those archetypes to, to be laid to rest and to step into new, new me, um, in, into a, a new identity. Um, and through that, I mean, they, they're really seen as, as trials or, or, or even tribulation. Um, but typically it, it is a rite of passage. Um, and through that initiation, once you get through the other side, um, you, you just totally transformed. Um, the ego typically is dissolved. Um, I mean, maybe not completely, uh, but, uh, but, but certainly in, in a very big way and your values shift and, uh, and, yeah, so so that's typically how it is in many indigenous cultures. There's sort of a like that that bloodline as well. Um, so that is part of the initiation, but of course, not not in the case in in modern practitioners. Hmm. And then, what do you think about this idea or this understanding that we so the there's a in with Western psychology, we've pathologized a lot of um, states of being or, or, you know, as mental illness, uh, mm -hmm. schizophrenia, um, other things like that. And I've read, I haven't done a lot of research into it, but I've uh, definitely read some stuff about uh, in India that people with these conditions don't have the same type of stress associated with them because the society around them has a, has a kind of a cultural conceptual understanding of the place that that, that that experience of life has for, for various things. And I wonder about the connection you see between mental illness with quote marks around it and um, shamanic uh, practitioners. Mm. Um, what I would say that 
you know, the ancient practice of shamanism, I, I think humans were in a really different place. Um, they typically were very much in timing with the land. So when there's much daylight, there's much more work and much more play associated because daylight provides for that. And as the days get shorter, uh, there's, you, you know, you, your circadian rhythm actually changes and you wind up following uh, the shorter days and, uh, and, and there's more periods of, of close connection um, intimately and more sleep and more rest. Um, so I would say with, you know, one can say maybe it's a rise or maybe it's just a more medicalized understanding of mental illness um, that it's gone on the increase. I mean, certainly anxiety and stress in general has increased. Um, I, I think it's an indication of where humans are right now um, in their spiritual evolution. And it really is a time where people um, are being asked to really inquire where their values lie and are they living in congruence with their value. In terms of people of various um, abilities, I, I, I do believe, and I mean, it's, it's, it's fairly understood that, um, that these sort of stigmas are not associated um, in the way that, let's say, um, a capitalist culture uh, would, would associate with. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that's, that's actually, you know, an important uh, piece to consider as people become more uh, called to return to more earth-based living and realizing that um, this constant striving and reaching and earning um, isn't necessarily uh, A, making us any, happy, any more healthier or happier, but B, it's, not, it's certainly not making us any more tolerant and inclusive and appreciative of diversity. So uh, what I'm getting this from this is essentially that uh, in a different culture, which doesn't have the capital as uh, as a large part playing in the part in the incentive structure for that culture, that um, things like mental illness can get because of the productive nature of each human being and the kind of moral implication of productivity that's necessary. Uh, the like somebody with schizophrenia is not going to be as productive in a capital capital way, a capital producing way. So it's therefore pathologized. Um, but in a different culture that doesn't have that same incentive structure for capital, um, that uh, these things aren't put into that same bucket with that same stigma. Correct. Um, and may I add that typically the way Western science sees things is if it cannot contain that thing in a little box and define it, it is typically pathologized. Um, I'll give you a few examples. So um, pregnancy and uh, birthing for a very long time, and I would say in some areas this continues to be pathologized. Whereas women have always, uh, you know, bore babies and, and, and gave birth to them, always. I mean, this is just sort of natural. This is what makes uh, that's, it's, it's what allowed humans to continue on. 
Um, another thing that has been gravely pathologized is uh, women's menstruation. Or if it's not, you know, women specifically, anyone who menstruates, uh, it's deeply, deeply pathologized. Um, pain is seen as a negative rather than a message from the body. Um, and, you know, where there's so much fixation about avoiding pain and stopping the feeling, the experience of pain that, you know, it's, it's really too bad because when we experience pain, it's the body's way to tell us to pay attention and to examine where and why is this pain happening. And um, it's, you know, very likely it may not be purely physical. Like there's, there's emotional ties to physical pain. Um, so I think a lot of things besides just mental illness or, you know, varying abilities, um, even in the physical that are pathologized. Um, many of us live on a daily basis of being pathologized or perceiving things in that way, in that construct. Uh, uh, the, I want to go back to the pain part. That seems like an interesting avenue. What, uh, what is your understanding of, of pain and how does it differ from what you see pain being um, conceptualized? You already answered a little bit, but I'd love to go more into, into your understanding of pain and what it means for a human body. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I think we can talk about pain from a purely physiological perspective, but A, I'm not an expert on that. Mm. Um, so, and also, so I wouldn't be able to provide you the kind of robust, uh, superbly up-to-date information. Um, and, and I would argue you've probably actually spoken to others and, and interviewed them um, who are a far more accurate representation of that. What I'm seeing in my work is that there's an immense emotional, spiritual connection to physical uh, disharmony. So it could be, let's say, um, unconscious eating habits or uh, eating disorders uh, that is manifesting in the body through behavior and through compulsion or through, you know, uh, specific ways of relating to, you know, your body as a, a form of matter to food as another form of matter. Um, but I'm able when I journey for clients and when I say journey, I, I am stepping with their permission into that spirit place, um, on their behalf to consult with spirits and, um, other just, yeah, various spirits that will provide me insight that I can then relay back to them. What I'm saying uh, more and more is that these, you know, deep-seated um, codependency, really, um, is really coming from an emotional wound. And it could stem from childhood of that individual. Very likely, it's actually um, ancestral. It's, there's been a story that has been passed on through multiple generations. Um, and that's just something that I can't... Uh, a makeup um, because the you know what they share with me is so detailed and so precise um, that when I relay this back to clients they're just like oh my gosh yes of course of course I've always known this but how come I just never listened or never acknowledged it yes 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 and 
Um, and yeah, so I mean, I'm just using one example, like just, you know, humans relationship with food. But uh, I've, I've done this a fair bit just because I, um, I also like part of the ceremony brand um, is it is a ritually made ceremonially made um, skin and aura care line. So many of my clients actually come asking me about skin issues or skin disorders, but they're wanting to understand it, not from a lens of a dermatologist, but from a spiritual lens. And so once again, I go into those spirit worlds and I explore for them and I bring back that information. And sometimes even while I'm there, I may even sort of detangle some of the energetic or like spiritual codependency that has taken place. And it's just astounding that, by the time physical matter is really dense, humans are are dense. If you compare it, let's say, to something that's uh, that's more etheric, um, so by the time our physical body picks it up, um, there's been a fair amount of time that's already spanned that this issue has already been festering. Um, so it makes sense to to go into that emotional and spiritual place to discover and to um, to, to bring about changes. And then of course, when that is, when, when that's been done, then the physical follows. And where did you, how did you learn how to do that going into the spirit realm? <laughs> Not the short answer or the long answer. Uh, let's do the long one. Okay. Um, well, uh, I would say that I've experienced the paranormal, um, since a very young age. So I, you know, I like one of my earliest conscious memories is talking to trees. Um, must've been about three or four years old. So very, very young. And, you know, I grew up in a family where, well, my father's an atheist and he really believes in science. So it was just, you know, like baloney to him. And my mother uh, she was a practicing Buddhist, but she converted to evangelical Christianity uh, around middle school years. Um, so, you know, what I, what I perceived was just nearly seen as, as evil or demonic. So I learned to just suppress it and, and mm. push it away and dismiss it as imagination. Um, but I started experiencing more heightened and more frequent occurrences of the paranormal when I was about 19 onwards. And it would be typically smelling um, scents that are not physically there in the room. And I learned to associate them with people um, or with emotions or with warnings. Like I, for instance, I, um, there's this like patch in my life where for some reason I was always smelling greed around me. And I learned through some, you know, trial and error uh, to to just be extra cautious um, around uh, the situations and the people that are in the room when that smell comes up. Um, but once again, it was just it's just not something like a. There's not a lot of resources out there. You know, I went to metaphysical bookstores. I I had you know people read for me, read my palm, and I had I asked that question like, why am I experiencing this? And it's just not a like they. You know, they may point me into the direction of, yes, like, you know, spirit is, is talking to you, um, but there's no like manual or like book um, that tells you how to heighten your ability 
uh, for clairfaction. Um, there's a fair amount of literature for clairvoyance, for instance, like people who have visions and who can sort of see into the future or to see sort of extra perceptions through vision. But that's not what I experienced. It was always um, through, through scent. And when I was, so yeah, this continued on. Um, and when I was um, pregnant with my second child, uh, there, there were a number of miscarriages between my first uh, child being born and my second child being born. And, um, and so when, when I became pregnant again with my second child, I, I was really excited. I really had a lot of confidence that, you know, this pregnancy is going to be viable. The first trimester was smooth and uneventful. And then one day in the early phase of the second trimester, I started hemorrhaging, which is how all the other miscarriages had started. So I was completely crestfallen and just like, like it was just this feeling of just so much sorrow and disappointment. Um, and it happened in the morning. And so I sort of, you know, did my best to kind of clean it up and sort of contain myself for a little bit until I could get my son off to school, um, you know, made his breakfast, packed his lunch, that type of thing. And in the middle of that, you know, that commotion in the morning, the doorbell rang. So I rushed to the door and my son was there too, because like, he and I both heard the doorbell ring and we opened the door and there's no one at the door. And we thought, that's kind of odd. Like, who would ring, you know, the door so early in the morning and not be there? And and then I just, like, kind of looked up. And across the street on my neighbor's lawn was my spirit ally. It was um, the great blue heron. And the bird looked right at me and then flew away. And then I thought, and just so you know, like, it's not really, like, I mean, maybe there's, like, crows and squirrels and the occasional raccoon in my neighborhood, but like not great blue herons. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway, when I saw that, when I saw him, I knew that this baby would live. So, um, you know, I got all my tests done and uh, no one could really figure out what exactly was causing the hemorrhaging. But, you know, I, they all noticed as well as I did that when I was reclining in bed, um, or on a couch or something, um, I would bleed. But when I stood up, I would bleed. So I was um, put on five and a half months worth of bed rest. So basically for the entire remainder of the pregnancy until the baby was term. And so it was during that time that I committed myself to um, a meditative practice. And it was not because I enjoyed meditating. I actually chose meditation because I felt it was like the hardest thing that I could ever do. Um, because I, I really did not like meditating and my experience of meditation would be, you know, the two minutes of meditating typically guided during Shavasana. And I thought that was hard enough. Um, and yeah, so I thought, you know, I've got a lot of time on my hands. I can read and kill time on Facebook and all this stuff, but I, I want to do this. Um, it's probably the only time in my life I'll ever really have this chance to really commit to this practice. And so I did, and it, you know, evolved to, um, to longer increments as weeks passed by. And, um, yeah, I would say towards, you know, the end of the term, I was meditating about five hours a day uninterrupted. And one day when I was meditating, I, I, 
unintentionally access that spirit world. And I discovered, um, you know, I met Heron again and I discovered a few other spirit friends or allies and they said some things, you know, about me and about my life and about my family and about a few close people in my, my circle. And a lot of them were predictive. Um, and so when I came out of it, I was just like, wow, this is, this is real. Like, like once again, I didn't make this up. It's not my imagination. I'm not that creative. Um, and I didn't tell anyone about it because I almost wanted to see, I wanted to test to see if what they told me was actually going to unfold in the way that they, they told me it would. And indeed it did, or, you know, all those little bits did. And, and it was just like mind blowing to me. Um, I tried going back there in that spirit world during the pregnancy and I, I didn't know how because once again I went there unintentionally by accident in the first place. They didn't really know how to get back and I didn't go back into that journeying type of trance um, until the day that I was giving birth to my second son. Um, it was a really quick labor. It's happening just very, very quickly very intense. The, the physical feeling was just like these waves that are completely washing over you um, to the point where I almost felt like just overcome by it all. And then for some reason, it sort of, I felt like it stalled a bit and it wasn't a conscious choice, but I just found myself very intuitively journeying into my womb, into the birth canal. And I met my baby before he was like physically born. And I say, hey, what's up? Like, why are you having any second thoughts? Why the stalling? And he said, well, mama, I don't know if that place out there is any better than this place here. I'm really comfortable here. I really like it. And I said, oh, you betcha. You're going to love it, baby. Like, you're going to meet all the people who've been waiting to meet you. I've been waiting for you for a very long time, even before you were conceived. And I can't wait to hold you in my arms. And after that, I came out of that trance in two pushes and he was out. So I would say that was sort of the start of it. And then eventually I did work with a second generation shamanic practitioner um, from Vancouver Island and um, a few other teachers that work in maybe not in a shamanic journey tradition, but certainly in a very divine feminine earth-based shamanic tra tradition, um, including Vicki Noble. Um, she uh, co-created uh, the mother peace tarot deck and it's a very specific tarot deck. So yeah, worked with different teachers. Um, but a lot of it was just piecing the things that I was already doing together. Um, you know, not all shamanic practitioners, for instance, necessarily uh, work with, um, you know, paranormal scent. Um, not all of them necessarily uh, divinate with dreams. Um, but, you know, that, that is something that I do. I, I assess my dreams every morning. Um, and um, people, you know, in my circle know that if they have a question, they typically DM me with their dream. And I'll sort of give them some pointers of what most likely the message is about. Um, yeah, so every practitioner sort of does it a little differently. And, and so, so mine is a bit, you know, just, it's, it's unique to me and also in the context of my specific, um, you know, ethnic background, you know, being Taiwanese born from Taiwanese parents, but, uh, you know, living in the West, um, and having sort of this blend of East and West, um, 
in terms of understanding and, and even in terms of values and, and spirituality. Um, <clears throat> so I've got a question in my mind, but it's not fully formed. Uh, and it has to do with the, this, it's an interest, there's an interesting thing happened because this is my imagination leads me to believe that a lot of different cultures, uh, you know, smaller cultures like tribes would have these lineages that were passed down and like everybody would kind of agree on the same basic nature of reality. Like this is why the sun comes up at this time. This is why, you know, or this is, this is this like idea we have about the way the gods are working or these spirits are working and stuff like that. And it would be dependent on that. And then there's themes that are universal among all of them. Um, and then we as a society are now because of technology and culture and globalization are building this kind of multicultural um, transnational uh, you know, it's part of it's English speaking, but then there are other languages that are also involved in it, but there's a sort of unifying pattern that, that is happening among particularly in the English speaking internet connected thing, but it's also happening in other languages. Um, and then in our particular English speaking one, there, there is a lot of things going on, like, uh, shamanic practitioners, uh, yoga teachers, uh, um, it's, and it's in a sense, it's technology, but it's not technology in the way that we usually assume, uh, assume it with in based on the scientific method and uh, engineering and all this different stuff. It's a, it's a, it's a, a spiritual technology, I would say. Um, you know, and there are like millions of practices, uh, maybe even as many practices as there are people who are doing this stuff, because in the end it comes down to a, an individual and then the individual's understanding of, um, of the way these things work. So I don't really have a question there, uh, but it is, it is in just reflecting on the story that you told me, cause it's, it's very unique to you. Um, I've never heard of, uh, Para faction is that the word you use? What's the uh, Claire olfaction? Claire olfaction. So yeah, so you know, there's like clairvoyance, right? To be able to see something that is not literally there, or Claire, um, Claire audience to be able to hear something. Um, yeah, so olfaction is of course like referencing the uh, the sense of smell. Um, there may be other terms. Sometimes people call it clairsentience, but sentience almost also includes um, like the kinesthetic, like the, the touch bit. So it's not totally, um, yeah. But once again, it's not, it's, it's like you said, it's not fairly documented. I don't know if it's fairly common. I mean, I haven't actually met anyone that says that they experience the same thing. Um, I, I, there must be others that, that do have it, but I think it's a term, like the common term that people can sort of mutually use to mutually understand. I, I don't really know what other terms there are that describes that specific um, gifting. Mm. Uh, and it's so interesting. Where do you think this is headed in terms of this global kind of, you know, cause it, it used to be primarily on the West coast and, and even maybe within the West coast, like maybe even centered around San Francisco, but it was also probably in Vancouver and Seattle and Los Angeles. Um, uh, but then it, 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 and I'm not talking about the, the initial practices themselves, because those were thousands of years old, millions of years old. 
Um, but this kind of new, uh, they would be under the term like new age type of, it would all happened with this new age publications because the new age publication industry basically spread information about all of these different things. Um, and a lot of that came from the West coast. Uh, and now, but now is spreading out into the rest of the world. I spent a lot of time in Mexico city and it's really interesting because Mexico has a traditional indigenous, um, healing, uh, 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 that was also co-opted by the the people colonized Mexico, uh, and then warped and changed and put it and stuff like that. And so that exists in Mexico. And now there's also another input of this yoga stuff happening. Yoga is now becoming popular. Yoga asana is now becoming very popular in, in Mexico. Um, and it's kind of reforming and, and changing. Where do you see this going in terms of uh, what is happening globally? Big question. Um, so glad you asked. Um, I think I'm just gonna riff because I, I feel like you know this question can take us to so many different places, Stuart. Um, so a yeah, I, I definitely since you know the end of that um, calendar in in 2012, so that the Mayan calendar in 2012, we definitely stepped into this age of of an increase in consciousness and an interest in in remembering sort of you know the the old ways um and i think with the way technology it's just so it's it's so integrated and so necessary um in our life that uh, it's really supported uh that spread um so you'll find all sorts of hybrids and integration of, of different practices you know going going back to you know what what you were uh providing as an example um you know maybe there's the indigenous uh, indigenous mexican with that's blended with still some you know remnants of catholicism and uh another you know yogic or other new age practices um my thoughts i i think it's I think a lot of it has to do with intention. Um, I'm really excited to see so many questioning, you know, reality, um, like they're what they had accepted as reality. And I'm, I'm so encouraged to see that people are, are waking up and remembering, you know, what it means to be connected to your intuition, what it means to be connected to the greater world and that humans are not really the only objects, sorry, subjects in the world um, but so is nature. Like nature is a subject. It's not the object. We're so traditionally, at least through, you know, colonialism has been trained to see everything else as sort of passive. Um, and that's what makes it so easy for us to, you know, destroy ecosystems um, for the sake of profit and so forth. Um, I also do see that there's an incredible business around spirituality. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, <laughs> in a capitalistic type of system um, if something is marketable it will be marketed um, and if there's you know demand it will be it will be sold um, and so I think there's varying degrees of respect um, that's uh, that's it's you know that's within the practice of individual practitioners and teachers and publication houses and other organizations and so as part of you know the mass becoming um more thirsty for meaning 
and thirsty for that reawakening and that remembering of who they are. And when I say remembering, I, I'm, I mean it in the sense of R-E hyphen membering, as in whatever we have dismembered, we are now reattaching it. We are remembering that thing, which is typically um, our intuition and our, our relationship with uh, the natural environment. We are remembering, we are reattaching that. Um, so I think it's part of the role of the individual to be really critical um, and to be healthy in the way that they consume. Um, because, you know, not everyone that is offering retreats or some new hot book or some, you know, five-part online module is necessarily doing it out of um, compassion or out of, like, uh, uh, like a, a real contextualized understanding of the practice. Um, I think a lot of snake oil is being sold in the marketplace. Um, and that's typically, you know, in this kind of world, um, when something is on the increase, like that counterpart will also be on the increase. So it, you know, is an exercise that we need to be in. Um, we need to have those kind of conversations with ourselves and with others. I wish I had the exact concept in my head, but there's this book called Psychedelic Information Theory. Um, and uh, it's essentially trying to describe, it's trying to build a theory of what psychedelics do. Um, mm to our, to our brains when we, when we take them. And the idea is, is that my, my default mode network, my, my ego is essentially inhibiting the vast majority of things that are happening around side uh, around me right now and only yeah. allowing me to focus on what's relevant and the information that's either a tool or obstacle. And then in this theory is I take a psychedelic. If I were to take a psychedelic right now, in 30 minutes, those barriers towards everything else would fall. And I would essentially be see reality without so many filters. Um, and then at the, the last chapter of this book called Psychedelic Information Theory, he talks about, well, what are the other things behind besides psychedelics that also do this type of thing? And, you know, that's everything we've been talking about so far. Um, and, uh, and he goes into shamans and basically that the, that's the technology that shamans use is this psychedelic information theory without necessarily the psychedelics. They also use psychedelics, but, um, and so, what is happening when we, when we, uh, oh yeah. And then, so there's the, and, but then there's the, you know, it's kind of Manichaean and, and dual, 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 dualistic, but there's the good and the bad, and you can use these technologies for both of those different things as well. So, um, mm -hmm. and it's a, uh, it's very interesting. I'm re reminded of the book, uh, Don Juan. No, it's not Don Juan. It's the guy who goes off into the Sonoran desert. He's a scientist. And then he, uh, goes off and studies the Yankee, Yaki, Yaki Indians in, um, uh, in northern Mexico uh, and meets a shaman who teaches them all his stuff. And then the guy who wrote this book, why can't it? Castaneda. Um, mm. And he writes this book and you can go on Wikipedia and, and find the author of the book. And this guy ended up disappearing into the desert and died um, and, and created a, a, almost a cult. Uh, and and a bunch of other people died as well um, because this stuff is is not you know it's like we have all these romanticizations of it and 
uh, all these things that like, oh yeah, it's just, you know, get, get to enlightenment. Enlightenment's great. You get nirvana and it's beautiful all the time and it's sparkly and everything like that. And it's like, well, no, it's, uh, it's like this stuff is, there's a reason why only one person in the tribe would do it. It's not, um, mm-hmm. it's not for everyone. Uh, uh, and it's really interesting because now we seem to be entering an age where these things are becoming much more common, particularly among the elite um, and as a means towards gaining material power as well. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it's an interesting, uh, an interesting thing that seems to be happening right now. Wow. You touched on so many things that I would love to comment on. Um, the, the more immediate, sorry, like the last thing that you had mentioned of, you know, that, you know, there's a reason why typically there's this one individual that functioned as that bridge, um, for the group. Um, it's true. Like, I mean, even in, in my, my work, um, well, A, it's actually, I've always been able to like um, create really healthy boundaries between my professional work and my personal life. But, uh, you know, since uh, erecting ceremony and in my function as a shamanic practitioner, I, I do find it is challenging. And, um, but I, I know why, like I, I know why it is challenging to create those boundaries. A, it's because there's just no way that I can, say that you know who i am when i show up um, in service for a client um is also someone like i I can just sort of shut that person down in my personal life like it just doesn't happen um i think it's because like I'm, i'm very aware of the spirits and um and because i can't physically like i i don't physically see them in my day to day like when i go in to shamanic trance I do but in my day-to-day operations um I don't see them but they definitely still find a way to get a hold of me right like through scent through feeling through um through just this like this presence in the room so to speak um and then also they do it a lot in my dreams like I'm constantly confronting um my shadows um and and I would say that that's actually another piece is if, you know, as a caution to somewhere, a caveat for someone who's, you know, considering to, to pursue this as a quote unquote uh, profession is that, it, yeah, you, you would, that individual would have to be really comfortable to live in, in murky, up in a murky place. Um, because I mean, the theme of death and once again, not necessarily like, physical death but just the death of ego and the death of archetypes and a personality and the, the the death of our stories we're really loyal to our stories as humans like we're really loyal to our past we're really loyal to our pain like it's it's really hard to say no that's that's done and to to, to step forward with um with a lack of clarity of who you are um it's typically that's sort of what we hold on to. Like, I mean, if you can't hold on to that, then what do you have to hold on to? Like, what is your ground? Mm. And, and then one, the other, right? As one and of the other, no, go for it, go for it. sorry, no, 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 you go. <laughs> uh, as one of my uh, coaches talks about, uh, says that the ego would rather die than the ego would rather have the physical body die than die psychologically in a lot of ways. 
Totally. I, I really agree with that statement because that was certainly true for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly true, I would say, for my clients that, that I work with. Um, it's the scariest thing to psychologically die and, and surrender to that. But, um, yeah. And it's crazy. Cause every time that I, I have a lot of that, a lot of that fear that comes up still. And, and, uh, every time that I hear it, the end state is always like marvelous. Like it's, I mean, well, and then there's another loop where, where the fear will come up and then it's not marvelous anymore, but <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> totally, totally. It is like a, this gradual evolution, so yeah. to speak. Um, but I, I, when I say evolution, I don't mean it in a linear sense. I actually, for me, um, it's more like a spiral. Like yeah. I'll, I'll return to that same theme again. And, but, but I'm different this time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, hence why it's a spiral. It's not really a perfect coil, so to speak. It's like this growing spiral. Mm. Um, I also loved how you talked about, um, you know, the brain, uh, the default mode network, you know, like that, that CEO, that, that is ruling how our brain perceives information, how it prioritizes and, and what it wants to address. And, and, you know, what I do see, um, because I also work um, in a very modern modality of neurofeedback, mm. that, um, that modernized humans have been groomed um, not only since birth, but like this is in utero, right? And I would even say this is in utero of, of our grandmothers because our mother's eggs were already in our grandmothers when she was forming. And so, you know, we have like at least three generations of this, Mm. um, right? Like us being like that third generation. And then our, you know, the, if we were to kind of trace the cellular matrilineal line, like to our grandmothers, um, we've been, we've just been in survival mode for a very long time. And when that beta Wait, when those beta waves, which are like the ones that are, um, it's like that productability or, or predictability and, or assessing, you know, what is most likely going to happen and then being productive and responding to what is most urgent. And really like it is a, um, a, like a fear-based or a, you know, a fight or flight sort of based mindset. Um, and that's really why, it's so easy for us to filter out all that other information. So through, you know, like neurofeedback's one way, you build resilience within the brain so that the brain can be adaptive and can sort of shift um, more into, uh, let's say, um, a gamma base, which is big picture thinking, much more compassion, much less time driven, or even theta, more like emotional, relational sort of ways. And it, you're typically in a more relaxed state and so forth, that it's been really great to be able to become more conscious and more mindful. And then within, you know, my shamanic work, I don't work with psychedelics um, professionally. I have to preface that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a few very simple tools that get us in that place. And one of them is through rhythm. So we typically are entering into that theta brainwaves when we dance, or when we're listening to um, uh, music with a very strong dominant beat. Um, and then of course, in my shamanic practice, uh, something that would be more um, you know, analog, so to speak, would be uh, drumming 
unraveling. And just those two acts really can um, really just entrain the brain to, to let go some of that, you know, iron grip of having to have everything in control, um, including your mind. Uh, so you were mentioning that you, when you meet with clients, you're meeting with them remotely and then you essentially, when you go into it, you go into a trance state with them or you go into a trance state mm. and then, so, go for it. um, so when, um, so I, so I work with clients remotely, um, for something called remote shamanic readings. They typically email me and, um, with a request and the request is typically a question that they would like me to ask their spirits about. Um, well, first of all, if they've never worked with me before, the first part of that would be the request to meet their spirits and to discover who their spirits are. Um, and then part two would be to ask a question. And sometimes it may be a request. It may be like, well, you know, I like to get to the root of this particular pattern or behavior that continues to um, appear in my life. Um, and it's something that maybe they have already taken steps through other means to address, but you know, it's just something that's still lingering. And so that's really when you know that it most likely was rooted from something spiritual. And um, so then, uh, yeah, so they email me that we agree on a date um, that I'm available that may or may not, um, they don't have to be physically available because when I'm doing this, I'm doing this independently of them. But sometimes there may be like a symbolic date that they want me to journey on. You know, it could be like a birthday or, you know, like an anniversary or something. Um, and yeah, so during that time, um, they're doing their own thing. You know, they typically, you know, are going to work or whatever. It's just like they're having a normal day. But for me, um, in my studio, I am uh, in ceremony. Um, you know, there's some rituals that I perform beforehand. And then I go into that spirit world. I meet and befriend their spirit allies. And it's really critical that I do that bit first because they they're they're not going to disclose anything to me if I haven't formed the friendships. It's like human, you you know if you, if someone doesn't trust you, they're not going to tell you anything. So making forming that relationship is the first step. Um, and after that, when I know it's the right time, then I you know present that information um, or present that question, and um, they in turn reveal a lot to me. Um, typically through um, through metaphor. So it will be through like, they either tell me something almost like in a form of a riddle or, or like a, like a metaphor or some type of um, narrative um, that has a fair amount of symbolism in it. And um, I'm typically making sense of it right then and there, like with them, because then I can sort of respond with maybe like a part two of a question or asking for clarity or asking for confirmation, that type of thing. We just have a conversation. And then once that's all done, I come back and um, I shift out of that dream state 
Um, and then I plunk myself down in front of my desktop and I type everything up. I type the whole thing. And it's like a massive email that the client gets. Mm -hmm. Like it's a very, very, very long email. Um, and as I'm doing that, um, I'm essentially channeling what had happened and I'm also being still really receptive to any additional interpretation that may come through or any additional message, um, that may come through, um, through that spirit world. Cause I haven't actually closed that portal yet. And then, so I type all that stuff in there too. And, um, so when they get that email, there's, there's several parts to it. There's part one, which is the shamanic narrative. And I provide every little detail, everything I saw, everything I smelt, everything that was heard or shared, um, all the suggestions that that spirit may have um, had for that client. And then the part two is additional interpretation. Oh, by the way, did you know that if your spirit animal is a jaguar, then it may mean that you are a serial entrepreneur. Like just super random because I've done enough of this where I'm noticing there's like these links. Mm. And um, so I'll say that. And so it's not actually information from the journey itself. It's just additional interpretation that I can, and meaning I can provide for the client. That's part two. And then part three would be like spiritual homework. These are things that would be really good for you. A, if, um, if that person is in need of uh, cleansing their aura, then I'll provide that. Or if I see that there's a certain book or a certain um, additional person I can refer to, I'll, I'll provide that information. I'll just include whatever is relevant. And so that's the email they get. And like I said, it's like a really long email. Um, and uh, and that, that's the work, but they're, they don't do anything. Like they, I, I do provide when, when they book um, a little ritual they can do um, on their own at home, either the morning of the actual journey or even, you know, the night or so before, but that's totally for them. It's just to allow their, um, about just to allow their sort of traditional kind of rational defenses to come down so they can be receptive to what I share, but it actually makes no impact to my journey. Like whether they do it or not will not make an impact on how effective my work is. Um, yeah, so that's basically how it works for me. When uh, and you might have you might have said it, but when you sit down to do this, is there a method that you have, or do you just be like, okay, I'm in trance now? What, how does that work? <laughs> <laughs> I love that question too. Um, well, yeah, there, for sure. There's a, so there's some you know like core shamanic protocol. So I, I have to cleanse my aura and make sure that um, I'm in a right place with the spirits. Um, I cleanse my space. Um, I rattle. You know, I, I have the element of fire. Um, there's drumming and all that. Um, and then when, and that's when I go on the formal journey. And then when I'm out of it and I'm, you know, typing from my desktop, I'm typically listening to a, a form of music that has very specific um, like BPMs, um, like beats per minute within the, the sound uh, or like within the music because it just keeps me in that trance state. And for me, it's typically like like Berlin techno. Like I will be 
<laughs> it's like, it's that keeps me focused. Mm. Um, which of course is like, you know, that's definitely not ancient, but I actually would argue in some ways it is because it's very, very um, drum and beat based. Right. So um, yes, I know it's all rendered um, digitally now, um, but, but for the most part, it's, it's doing, it's functioning in the same fashion as um, if I were drumming, but I can't drum and type simultaneously. So you know, something has to be doing that for me. Um, and then at the end of it, I, uh, I, I release the spirits. I, you know, I give gratitude and all that. Um, and I, I close that portal. Um, that's sort of what the process is um, in terms of the, the skeletal structure of the experience. Mm. For the individual, it will vary. Um, you know, the length of time I need to journey for, the length of time I, or the amount that I write, like that, that will vary for the individual. Well, cool. How can my uh, listeners find out more about what you're doing or uh, get in touch with you? Um, so my website is shopceremony.com. Ceremony is spelt with an I-E at the end. Um, I'm also on Instagram. I'm fairly active there. Um, that's uh, Shop Ceremony. And if you're curious about the neurofeedback, although I work um, exclusively in Metro Vancouver for neurofeedback. Um, feel free to check out either uh, openmindsperformance.com. Uh, minds is plural, so openminds with an S, performance.com, or at uh, openmindsperformance. Um, and yeah, or uh, you can email me. It's info at shopceremony.com. Cool. Thank you so much. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Stuart. Thanks for tuning into the show. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, and just to let you know, I'm now in Colombia and I'm, my goal is every morning to record a, or to publish a podcast. So I'll be publishing podcasts every day and hope you enjoy them. And if you did enjoy this episode, please uh, find us on iTunes or Spotify or any of the other kind of apps that you use in order to listen to podcasts and uh, go ahead and subscribe. And also, Give us a review if you really enjoyed this content. Uh, as always, I'm on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Uh, if you want to engage with me, send me a DM about how how um, how this content has affected your life, if at all. Uh, yeah, so I'll be publishing every day. Uh, glad to have you here and have a great day.